Bloodbath and Beyond, Season 2, Episode 1. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. Put your high heels on and take a vow of chastity, because today we're talking about It Follows. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. Bloodbath and Beyond. Alright, we're back. Yeah, it's been Little, a long time. Yeah, let's not talk about that. We're talking about. We're not talking about the past. We're no, about we're here to talk about the future. That's right, yeah. the future of horror of all things. Because uh, since we've been gone, some rather interesting horror movies have come out. Notably, you know, the film we're talking about today. Uh, well, when was your next? Well, your next was technically 2009, but didn't come out in theaters until what 2013, 2014. Yeah, it was shelved for a while though. That yeah, that, as... that was a great one. As in the case of uh, Trick or Treat, you know, the good ones tend to be shelved for a while. <laughs> so. Not, you know, I, I think there's like a jump scare sort of counter. And if you don't meet that, you know, Lionsgate or whomever, they're just not going to put your movie out. I, I think that has a lot to do with the way people watch horror movies anymore, which is that, you know, my understanding from being in theaters with teenagers is that you get a lot of people who are staring at their phones and not reacting to anything and they scream when a jump scare happens and they go right back to their phones so creepy horror doesn't tend to draw the attention or uh, positive response that perhaps it should less engaging is more engaging so let's engage right with this one so this is it follows uh it was a movie that originally was meant for a limited release but due to really great critical response got a wide release in march of 2015 yeah i think it debuted at uh, sundance had yeah, a lot it, of buzz oh it's cans can it was can yep can can film festival and it, yeah it, like you said it got a ton of buzz and the weinstein company uh purchased it under their new label radius twc yeah it was uh shot for just a a measly two million dollars on location in detroit michigan uh, this one caught my attention pretty early, just from some of the uh, promotional materials. There's a really, really great uh, vintage horror-style poster of the lead character looking in a rearview mirror. Yeah, it looks... Uh, you brought it up to me. It looked like one of those um, covers. Yeah, it looks uh, like a VHS cover you'd see at you know, Blockbuster or something back in the day. It's, it's hand-painted. It's not like a photograph of all the characters' faces in a blurry... It's, it's really beautiful, and, and I wish they were more confident in an art department and do something really pretty instead of just doing a quick Photoshop. Yep. So, believe it or not, I do care about the way a poster looks on a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with horror movies, because, I don't know, there's a lot of not-so-great horror out there, so for something to stand out and at least try to draw your eye in that way... That's a pretty great thing, and that's something that should be celebrated when it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I, I remember, you know, getting nostalgic already, but, you know, when you were a kid, you go into a video store, then you go into the horror section, mm-hmm. and all of those great VHS covers. Oh, man, I you could I just used stare to, at them for hours. I used to be terrified of, like, renting any of those movies just based on the cover alone, and, you know, I'd learn later in my years that. Hey, all those movies tended to be rather disappointing once you actually saw them. <laughs> or but yeah, oftentimes they didn't even have that scene. No, yeah, but the cover would be this tremendous thing that would just leave you going home and just imagining what the lurid contents of this videotape could be. Like, every tape seemed like the video from The Ring when you were a child. <laughs> you know, and it's funny now we're talking about the old days because It Follows is very much an old school style film. 
Oh yeah, it's it is a deliberate and loving homage to those kind of films. In particular, John Carpenter. Carpenter's yep. kind of got his stand his stamp all over this film, even though he had nothing to do with it. And very deliberately at that. Um, starting with obviously uh, the incredible soundtrack. Uh, yeah, yeah. If we can talk about the soundtrack for a minute, it is one of my absolute favorite horror soundtracks, bar it's, none, already. It's composed by uh, Disaster Piece, who is also known for the video game Fez, uh, but it is a synth-heavy piece. It sounds a lot like a John Carpenter score, but it also sounds very modern in a way. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a character unto itself. It creates dread and tension to a great degree in many scenes. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the film and the soundtrack separated. No. It's, they're just perfect for each other. So I, I guess talking at the soundtrack, let's just talk about that opening sequence. I know we don't want to go scene by scene with this one, but that opening sequence is among the best cold opens in modern horror. Oh yeah, that, I, I think it's just as good as um, some, you know, the opening to Jaws. Mm-hmm. The way it grabs your attention. In fact, it's very similar. Because it, and especially because it, it throws us right in, and we have no understanding of what's going on. Yeah, you know, a, a great way to start your movie is to have like a camera setup or just a movement that's very striking and different. You know, it's not cut very traditionally. Or in, in this case, it's not cut at all. Because what we see is a, a girl running out of a house in just, you know, sort of any town, USA, suburbs. Yeah, it's, it's very, like, yeah, it's a very Midwestern suburb in autumn. Yeah, and, and uh, the audience is, we're put in sort of this distant view. We're very much the voyeur. And, you know... And she's she's running in high heels. She's only got otherwise she's only got lingerie on. But it's not it's not lingerie in the luridly sexy sense that we're meant to like salivate over it. It's just the sense that whatever she was doing, she was caught in the middle of something by an unexpected scare and had to run outside. I could, yeah, it's the vulnerability thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that girl, uh, we we see her and she runs pretty much right to where the camera is. And then the camera keeps following her in a 180-degree pattern. Yeah, and she's looking off into the distance like something's chasing her. There's two really impressive movements in this. Uh, the first being the camera is very smooth and following her movements. And the second is that she is very impressive while running in high heels, uh, especially considering that she's running in grass, which you know I've, I've hung out with women who enjoy wearing high heels in my day, and I know that's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> That was impressive. She must be like a figure skater or something. Yeah, she's got some. She's got some gymnastics some, or something. Yeah, some balance skills there. But uh, but yeah, she's being pursued by something that we don't we don't see at all. Uh, to the you know the point where even her neighbor kind of goes, "Are you okay?" And like, and her dad comes out and asks her what's wrong, and she runs past him, grabs his keys, and drives off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, we need to emphasize that she does run in a complete circle. Yeah, like like she's going around something. Yeah, and, and then the camera pans 180 or uh, 360 degrees. This is something yeah. you don't see very often. And, and, uh, and we never see the interior of her house either. We stay at street level. Yeah. It's it's almost like a killer POV shot in that way. It kind of reminds me of and keep mentioning all these different directors, but Polanski in Rosemary's Baby. He was so good at kind of like drawing your eye. To where you would want to sort of like lean over and see what it was happening off to the side of the frame, out of you know, out of the frame. Yeah. Like, like the scene where Rosemary's neighbor is on the phone, and you you can just barely see the side of her, but you you just want to 
peer around that corner, it just grabs you so well. And the fact that this does it in the opening shot of the film, 20 seconds in or whatever, is and really impressive. And tells us nothing and shows us nothing that lets us assume what horror she's feeling. It's just watching her movements and knowing that she's seen something awful and that she knows that her life depends on just keeping moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get a really nice shot of the beach with the headlights of her the headlights of the car shining on her at night. She's calling her parents and apologizing. It almost sounds like a suicide note. Um, and just her seeing something in the, the red brake lights of the car facing the other direction, but we as the audience are not privy to it. I did want to mention before she does get there, though, I love how once she runs into the car, the camera starts moving along with the car, and then it cuts abruptly. Yeah. That, that was really impressive. Um, there's, there's a lot of technically beautiful things going on in this movie that we're going to really get into. Yeah, it, the, the chock full... And, the more you think about it being done on a really tiny budget, the more, the more impressive, impressive it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm so uh, just blown away by the setups they do in this movie, the way they can make just a typical American suburb look. They can look, look make it make it look very inviting, and then you know in the next shot they make it look really sinister. And this was filmed on location in in Detroit. Yes. Yeah. So there's uh, you know it's. You know, for all you hear about Detroit, it looks like a really beautiful place that looks like every town you know. Well, it, well there's an interesting thing, though. The, the movie does show the suburbs. It's, like, oh, yeah. really nice and clean. And then it does it goes into, like, the rougher areas of Detroit in a couple right, of where shots. The, where, the, where the suburbs end and the city begins, and it's yeah. just dilapidation and urban decay. Yeah, it's all the bad although, things you've heard about on the news. Although, you know, from where I live in Norfolk, Virginia, there's quite a few places like that, too, though certainly not to the degree that it's true in Detroit. So that's still, even that dilapidation and decay makes me feel like home. We, we emphasize this because that creation of that Anytown USA vibe uh, certainly helps it recreate the vibe of the Haddonfield, Illinois, or other towns of slasher movies, but also just in creating that central dread that's so important to slashers, I think, and especially with suburbia as the backdrop. Yeah. Well, we haven't really mentioned what the movie's about. Well, yet. no, but I, I did want to say that the the uh, the the first girl we see, her death is very violent, but it's not shown. We just see the aftermath. Uh, yeah, we see her her one of her legs and has it, bent so far backwards that it's broken. Yeah, you see the bone sticking out, and her body's you know totally looks like it's just been pulverized, really. I, I, I'm just mentioning that because later we're going to talk about the creature's methods, and I think that that's going to very. I think the implication there is very disturbing without having shown anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a great horror film, will sh- you know, something with a monster like this will show you what exactly the consequences will be mm-hmm. if this thing gets you. Yeah, this is a this this plays out like a supernatural slasher, but the the gore and stuff is not the point of it. There's, yeah, there's very little gore. In fact, I'm trying to think of like a violent death in the movie, and there really isn't. No, nothing that you really see on screen. Yeah, there's a couple gunshot wounds, but even then, it's to a, it's just something that doesn't seem to affect, that it kind of brushes off. Yeah, so, it's, it's the mark of a, of a restrained director. But yeah, this, this film is about a character named Jay. Uh, J-A-Y. Uh, by the way, realized that is meant to be short for Jamie. I did and, not know that. And, she, and her sister is named Kelly, and Jamie Lee Curtis's sister is Kelly Curtis. So 
That's already a deliberate, another deliberate John Carpenter homage. And there's many uncanny uh, shots lifted right from Halloween. Mm-hmm. So, director, Elliot, especially Halloween. Especially Halloween. But yes, so uh, this movie follows what, I guess we'll just jump right into it. It follows what is, I mean, I, I hated to say that, I just said the title without <laughs> <I'm> thinking <laughs> about it. But the movie is about a sentient curse that is transmitted transmitted sexually. I think of it as an invisible mummy. Yeah, it's... I mean, a lot of people have said succubus, incubus. Uh, but again, uh, the director, David Robert Mitchell, has said he, is, he has zero interest in explaining what the creature is. Because that's not this kind of movie. That's not the point. That's not the point. Although... There are rumors that the studio that shot this wants to make a sequel in which people go down the line to figure out what it is, and I hope that never happens. <laughs> I, I would just love it as this, this movie just being, here it is, here it, you know, there's no sequel, no remake. But yeah, uh, we, we, we learned that, uh, well, we see that Jay sleeps with a sort of cool guy with a car that she meets. Uh, he They have sex. He chloroforms her, ties her to a wheelchair in an abandoned parking garage and informs her that she has now been given a thing. He passed it to her in the car. Someone gave it to him. Now I've given it to you and it's going to follow you relentlessly. <laughs> and follow what, it does. Yeah. And whatever you do, don't let it touch you. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, all we know. And the, and the creature can look like anyone, you know, but personally. it tends to, it tends to like to look like things that will personally upset you. Yeah. And whether or not you're next on its list, because it moves down the list, mm-hmm. uh, you're you're always going to be able to see it. Yeah, but only the people who have been infected can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, th- that's actually one of the strengths of this movie is that the creature follows a very clear list of rules. Mm-hmm. For uh, the most part, for the most part. For the most part, yeah. There's there's a couple small deviations, but I, I think I think the strength of it is to have those clearly defined rule sets because, uh, you know, horror fans like rules. Yeah. It, it's just a, a problem with a lot of fiction and, you know, film. You see this all the time in sci-fi films, just the deus ex machina mm-hmm. mechanic. And oftentimes it'll just take you right out of the movie. Like, oh, okay, well, that just saved them for no reason other yeah. than the script needing it. But, I mean, as far as horror and rules go, I mean, let's look back. I mean, you have any any ancient monster you can think of, the vampire, the werewolf, the witch. Like, there's always clear-cut rules to beating these things or overcoming them or things to do to avoid their notice. <clears throat> and then, you know, of course, Scream became so famous because it pointed out all the slasher rules. And, you know, now anybody, even people who haven't seen a lot of slasher movies, quote those rules religiously, whether they apply to the film they're watching or not. Yeah, the thing with Scream, when that was made, that was done as a comment on the slashers of the 80s, and now we're in this 20 years later after Scream, and it, it's, it's pretty fascinating to me how it's just changed. Yeah, because the movies that Scream's commenting on are no longer the movies that are in vogue. Now we, we tend to have a lot more supernatural threats these days. Mm-hmm. And it follows plays on that. It does. Uh, but it it also has a lot of interesting things to say about I don't know the the dangers of the the dangers of teenage sex, which is always a something that's in the on the in the minds of all slasher movies, perhaps because but uh but also just in that that essential need for teenagers to be free. I don't I don't feel like this movie is judgmental about the sexuality. I, I don't think it's saying sex is bad. Don't ever have sex. 
No. I think it's saying it, it's kind of a fatalistic view in that death is inevitable. Yes. Well, yeah, let's, let's get right into that because uh, there is a quote uh, said by a teacher. The first time that Jay spots it, well, the second time, the first time is in the parking garage. And I, I want to say that's a really good – the parking garage scene is a scene the, that gets a lot of flack from Yeah, there's a lot of people got really upset by that. Like why would he chloroform her just to put her in a wheelchair just to tell her and, well, about the but, It Follows? Well, you know, I a I think it builds up ten. I think the chloroform scene builds up tension because it, it even if we didn't have any supernatural threat, the image of a girl being chloroformed in the backseat of a car by a guy that she trusts is horrifying and a that's true scary way. all in on an, into itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I I think in the case of the movie, it works a because it's shot so interestingly when they're in the parking garage. And B, because I think we learned from later in the movie that if you don't give people an extreme example to really make them think about what you're saying, mm-hmm. whatever it is comes right back after you. Yeah, I, th- I think if the, the, the boyfriend, or the date really, if he had told her, now there's going to be a curse that's going to pulverize your body if you don't get away from it and have sex with somebody else, she probably would have started laughing at him. And would have just, and this thing would have just approached her and gotten her. At some yeah. Point. Because the movie doesn't show it, but uh, tip, we we see a few scenes that suggest that other characters have had sex with other characters, and those other characters tend to disappear very quickly, and it comes right back. So you have to assume they didn't properly explain it, or they told people offhand about it, and that person didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. But for her to have this extreme example of being bound and forced and chloroformed, like, I think that really made it stick in her mind. And it's it's not just that he did it sadistically, it's that he's doing it out of self-preservation. Because as we know, this thing is like a chain letter and that it'll always return to you, inevitably. Yeah, yeah the whole, yeah the tying up of the, the bounding we're talking about, that that's the practical reason. And I think the other reason is David Robert Mitchell is trying to unpack a lot of uh, slasher and horror movie tropes. Which yes. is why he has the girl at the beginning running in high heels, even though uh, how however impractical that is. And he's addressed that already. He said he was trying to comment on like the woman in peril you would see in a Brian De Palma film. That's why there's specifically red high heels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of Scooby-Doo uh, method by which the teenagers try to get it later in the movie. Uh, yeah. He's he's trying to deconstruct these things and play with them. Yeah, it's a very it's a meta commentary, much the same way that Scream was a meta commentary of its own time. Yeah, and it's just the difference is this isn't like outright telling you. Yeah, no, this is this is more <laughs> about showing. It mm-hmm. doesn't like to tell very much. Yeah, always the mark of good direction. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's let's talk about the direction because the it's this is very evident in the parking garage scene, but it's also evident several times before when we see her date, uh, but. This movie is all about wide shots of backgrounds. Oh yeah, that that, that is a direct John Carpenter uh, influence. But, but here it's also used to perfectly create that dread that something off can, off frame is going to walk slowly toward the characters, whether it happens or not. You're always prepared because I mean that's the fundamental terror of this movie is that this thing is very slow, but it will but it's always coming. It's never it's there's never a moment where it's not walking directly toward you. It and doesn't it take, stop until you take, are dead. Yeah, it could take seconds, minutes, days, hours. No matter you know how, no matter how far you are, it will get to you eventually if you're not moving. Yeah, it doesn't get tired. It doesn't need to eat, sleep, any of most that. Most people, most people around you will never see it unless they have the curse too. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, one thing I, I kind of wish they did, and I know this probably would have been more tricky, but it, the the fact that we know that it occupies some sort of physical space, um, yeah. the outside world does affect it. Light bounces off of it. It it casts a shadow. I thought it would have been interesting if the if the it didn't cast a shadow at all, and it really was just this phantom after you. Yeah, well, that that gets into what I think is maybe the, one of the primary weaknesses of the film. Um, but and that's later on in the film we get, you know, after after she's trying to convince her other friends that something bat terrible is happening, and she's already been approached by the creature a few times, and some really well shot tense sequences, uh, including one with a with a door frame in which a seven foot seven actor <laughs> just yeah. ducks his head in, and it's terrifying looking. Uh, but the there is a beach scene in the middle of the movie, and I think it's one of the weakest sequences of the movie because it takes away that creature's lack of physical presence in a really less interesting way. It, it kind of takes the piss out of it a little. And it also has the film one of the film's sole jump scares. So they're on the beach. We, we see it walking up behind her while they're all sitting on the beach. She knows that it's coming. She's already told her friends about it. They've sort of been preparing. They One of them taught, you know, the bad boy taught her how to use a gun mm-hmm. um, just in case. Like, I don't think any of them have a great reason to believe her, but they just know that their friend is upset at this point, and they're trying to be there for her. Yeah, she's already had a few weird instances where she's outright told them, this is following me, this is what's happening. For all they know, their friend is having panic attacks and just running off constantly. Yeah. But they, but they, but because they're her friends, they've opted to be there for. Her. Well, I, I say friends, but one of them, uh, Paul, is this sort of twerpy guy who I've been referring to as a uh, portrait of a men's rights activist as a young. Oh, man. he's a total MRA kid uh, yeah, in yeah, training. He, <laughs> MRAT. He, yeah, he means well in his own way, but he's really just there. Even after he finds out that. Jay might have a curse that will kill him. If he he's has still, sex with her. <laughs> yeah, he, he still wants it. And he's still like, hey, you could just pass it to me and we could do this together. You know, like, he's he's very obvious. Although, you know, she points out that, hey, we could have had a relationship, but you also kissed my sister. So. Yeah, bro. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not a great guy, but he thinks he's a good guy. Um, he, he, he means well. He, he means he's not well, a malicious but... kid. I, yeah, but he there's still that he's still that slimy friend, you know, that's only there to hope hoping that he'll sleep with one of the girls in their friends group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but particularly Jay, who he and has he, a yeah, he and he really resents like the dumb guy from across the street, who we who we learn in the past has been with Jay before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don't they reference it kind of early, and then they outright tell us in the hospital sequence? Yes. That they they that back in high school they had had a thing briefly yeah. and it didn't work out. Um, but the beach scene, so the beach scene doesn't work for me because it removes any doubt that this thing that's following Jay is really there. Uh, it gra- it grabs her by the hair and they show us this by it invisibly pulling her hair up into the air. Uh, Paul attempts to hit it with a chair. Yeah, I kind of liked that scene. But... No, okay. I'll, I'll, well, okay. I think it's there. If we're talking about this being the scream of now, that scene is there purely because the thing to do in horror movies in the 2010s is to invisibly throw something somewhere. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was there just to get to definitively get the other teenagers on board with what's going on. I, I see. I wish it hadn't done that though. I would have rather 
she had to have like weathered down their judgment or just them having to accept that what she's saying on blind faith because they're there for her. But for them to deliberately see this thing like flinging one of their friends 10 feet away and breaking walls and stuff is it's a little less interesting to me it, it suddenly became, it, it's not the most creative it is a, kind of a clumsy way to go about getting the kids on board it's a clumsy way in a movie that's otherwise not clumsy uh, yeah yeah that's fair to say and but, yeah well, the movie's uh soul jump scare is there All right, i don't know yeah, well, the, the jump scare being that she sees the peeping kid from earlier. There's there's weird peeping kid neighbors that she yeah, has. Yeah, the, the peeping kid was... There's a kid early in the film spying on Jay when she's in her pool, which we'll talk about, like, water, the symbolism of that in a second. Mm-hmm. And the kid was only put in the movie just to have that one jump scare and halfway through. With the red ball. Yeah, with the red ball. Slamming against the window right after. <laughs> Uh, during that sequence too, by the way, it's interesting to me. I've, I've seen this movie a few times now, and I've seen it with usually with somebody who's never seen it before. And a few times, there's a scene where she's looking, where she like sort of pulls her underwear down and sort of looks down at herself, and people are like, "What's down there? What is she seeing?" And I don't think you see anything. <laughs> I think I think she's just kind of looking and like, "I don't feel different," you know, <laughs> like I don't mm-hmm. see anything different. But like some people I've I know have said like, "Does she have like a cursed brand down there now?" <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think she's just curious about her body now. Like, mm-hmm. is there the any indication? That, yeah. Right. In the same way that somebody who like worries they might be pregnant or, or something. Um, but yeah. This, so at this beach scene, I mean, like I said, the vogue of the vogue of horror movies now, especially post paranormal activity, is to invisibly fling people around. <laughs> Uh, it's in every horror movie now. You look at that abysmal poltergeist. It's it's, it's such remake. a la- it's kind of a lazy way to have. Just something crazy happen out of nowhere. It's also the easiest way to insert CGI into your horror film, which is what all studios want to do. Yeah, there's no CGI monster. It's just, well, whoop, you're flung away. Now, yeah, my, my problem is maybe seeing how the, the It can, at will, change its body. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't it always be like, I don't know, a linebacker, somebody big? To just crash through wherever. I mean, it does do this later when it turns into the seven-foot guy. Well, in, the, in this scene, it's kind of cool. Uh, that, one of the cooler things in this scene is that we see, when we first see it walking up behind her, it looks just like her friend until the camera pans back around and her friend's out, like, laying on a float in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's meant to throw us off for a second. But even then, like, every time you, in this movie, every time you see somebody walking straight and slow... You assume it's it, no matter where it is or what's going on. Oh, yeah. That, I love the scene in the uh, community college mm-hmm. where Jay looks out the window. That's the one where the, the teacher's reading the passage. Oh, uh, yeah. She's reading uh, the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock in which uh, death is referred. This is not, not in the section that she reads, uh, but the teacher's reading this. And in, in that poem, death is referred to as the eternal footman, which feels very relevant to this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but going back to that scene, it, it's uh, one of the most perfect uses of the way this movie go- does with empty space, mm-hmm. like John Carpenter would do. You have something very serene, and then you just have something pop into frame that interrupts it, Yeah. and it's terrifying. Yeah, in this case, it is a sickly-looking elderly woman who's barefoot just walking through a college campus. Yeah, and it, it does so well when the, the old woman starts walking through the hallway when it catches up to Jay and then the music kicks in. 
Just, oh my god. Yeah, that music. It, 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 and I, had it been that movie, that was that scene was so close to being unintentionally funny, but it but isn't. It never goes there. It doesn't go there, and that's just the mark of good direction. Mm-hmm. That you can keep that a uh, very consistent tone throughout, and so many movies kind of fall off the wagon with that. And that's where it's also definitively established to us that nobody but her is seeing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just it's it's really unnerving for something that's just a slow moving old woman. Yeah. It you you just dread that it gets close as close to her as it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so after following the beach scene, she decides to pass it on to the bad boy, and he very they immediately cut to him passing it on to somebody else, as far as we can see. Yeah, he's he's uh he's got a way about him with the ladies. He oh, doesn't yeah. have any trouble. No, no. Uh, and he's got a car. He's got all this stuff, you know. But he, yeah, he passes it on. But again, this goes back to the the extreme example the first date had to set because uh, it comes back to them fairly quickly after he passes it. <laughs> so I don't think he explained it or he didn't really like even believe it existed at that point too much. I don't know. It's just he he seemed very unconcerned. Like, yeah, I'm good. I can just keep passing this thing about. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he is uh, he's he's decimated by by it who uh, comes arrives to his house as him in long john pajamas. Yep, and then he's finally done in by his his mother. Mother in a nightgown. Yeah, and this is where we see how the creature disposes of people. I want to say, wasn't when the it, it sort of like suffocates him, right? Oh, it, it crushes it, him. It, it's grinding against him sexually. Yeah. And, and binding his wrists, and we just sort of see his face turn blue and pale. I just want to say, wasn't there like a bunch of water on screen? Oh, it's oozing fluid. Yeah, oozing like, fluid. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's like it's. I don't know if that's profuse sweat from it or just that it's got. It, but it, this, the creature is very connected to water because it's it's the passage of bodily fluid yeah. that is what's responsible for the curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time we see Jay, she's in her own little pool in the backyard. Um. Uh, she she has a in her mirror we see photos of her her father who is absent from the film and also uh, again a large pool. Uh, the first girl is killed next to the ocean. The we see yeah we see uh, the scene where she's introduced to it. There's a big there's a bunch of big puddles everywhere that are uh, given some prominence. In the parking garage, yeah, there's prominent puddles. Uh, one of the forms it takes is a bound and bruised woman with its hands tied behind its back that urinates on the floor. But, I mean, just knowing that how it killed Greg, who is the bad boy, that, that, that has some very disturbing implications about how it killed the girl at the beginning. Except I, I, I am glad that beyond, Gre- beyond a little bit of dry humping with Greg, we don't ever see how it does its business. I, I'm glad, too, because... Too often, a, mo- a movie will have like like a horror movie, especially might have like a rape scene, and it might come off as showing that it's kind of titillating, mm-hmm. a little too interesting. And here they just keep it horrifying because they just barely show it. Because Greg is the only thing, only person that we see it do anything to. Yeah. This movie is not about kills. Mm-mm. It's not about a body count. It's, no, this is not skip to your DVD scene for the best kills, jump to a nightmare or whatever. This movie wants to creep and fill you with dread and suspense and make you watch backgrounds and just follow the, I don't know, follow the emotional journey of the of Jay. Yeah, it, and it's so nice to see a horror film with atmosphere, an atmosphere that isn't like uh, 
a dirt brown dungeon torture room mm-hmm. like we've seen for the last 10, 15 years. No, this is a movie with a pretty nice color palette. A beautiful color palette, I think. Uh, my, my girlfriend, Brittany, as we were watching this, has pointed out to me several times that this movie looks like an Urban Outfitters catalog. Uh, and by that, she means there's a lot of soft lighting. She means there's a lot of sort of vintage clothing. It's it's all very beautiful and kind of glamorous. Yeah. Uh, yeah speaking of which, the movie it has a very timeless feel to it. Yes. We, we, well, the, we're not really sure what year it takes place. The, time, the timelessness has been a big discussion point uh, regarding surrounding this movie as to when it takes place because it definitely wants you to like see the retroness of the era it, it wants to make you feel like you're in that 60 that 60s to late 80s uh suburbia but a character does have one of the one of, the, one of jay's friends yara has one of the most inconvenient looking eaters <laughs> i've ever seen and the girl in the beginning has a cell phone but yeah you know, Yara's, uh, Yara's e-reader is a seashell, a yellow seashell with two screens, and it's in the middle is just a giant plastic bar. Yeah, like the hinge, and you have to just keep scrolling up every few lines just to keep up. <laughs> and she's reading Dostoevsky on this thing. Yeah. So. Do they actually make those things, or was that just the director going, well, I want something water-related. Give her a seashell. I, I didn't even think about that, yeah. but... Yeah, I have. I don't know. I've just, I've never seen one of those before. I, I I I kind of wish they had just let her have a paperback, but maybe that's not cool anymore. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe yeah. I don't know. But you know. But otherwise, it's it's interesting because like the kids are always watching like 1950s era sci-fi movies. Yeah, they go stuff. to see Charade at the theater on her date. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, they're and they're watching a they're watching old sci-fi on TV in the black and white. So a few scenes. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 not there to confuse you. It's just to give it a flavor. This movie has there, a taste to it. Well, it's it's there to imbue enough of that sense of timelessness. I mean, I know that we do see a cell phone, you know, in the beginning of the movie, but I, I feel like increasingly un- and unfortunately, that's something that horror has to address now. You can't you can't make a horror movie without a character going somewhere and commenting that they don't they got zero bars of reception or. You know that they're that they're oh they forgot to charge the phone on the way in because otherwise people be like why don't you just call nine one one stupid so, yeah the the cell phone has had such an unexpected impact I think on horror and the vulnerability that usually goes with the genre yeah that the, now we're just having to be creative like this and the ubiqui- the ubiquity of cellular phones and things and other God social media I'm gonna just take a brief moment to complain about the Scream TV series for which I have please by all means. I have now seen the pilot of the Scream TV series, and that within the first four minutes, they had already the first minute rather they had already introduced four social media <laughs> outlets. So you know you have you have a fake Twitter, a fake Facebook, a fake Instagram, a fake Snapchat. At one point, a character is about to be murdered, and she tells Siri to call nine one one for her, and Siri uh-huh. and, and Siri is like dialing Pottery Barn because that's a great joke, I guess. Not only do not know how to dial nine one one, but their technology sucks, and that millennials are awful. I don't, Wasn't that I don't, a joke in like the Little Rascals movie? It probably was. I mean, how do you just, dial nine one one? I don't know. <laughs> but you know, I I just I feel like well, Scream Scream TV is made for with a contempt for its own audience, and this movie is not uh, so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Um, this and the guest both occupy what I call magical John Carpenter land, where it's always just like a tinge of fall, or maybe it is actual Halloween season. And there's the yellow leaves everywhere. Yellow leaves everywhere. It's there's a homeliness, uh, like a, a warmth to the suburbs. They're really inviting. Um, and even even the even the dilapidation and urban decay that we see is kind of beautiful in a way. Yeah, like you want to go exploring. It's the haunted house you can't stay away from. But in Detroit's case, it's streets full of haunted houses. Yeah, and you know, and like it follows, the guest had that that heavy synth soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was much better in it follows. It, it served the film better. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the guest more in a little bit. Um, so, it follows sort of trucks on, and it ends up at a at an, a, maybe the most contentious scene in the whole movie, being the the finale at the pool, mm-hmm. uh, in which the characters decide make a plan that they are going to surround this public pool at a YMCA. Yes, with, and then lure the it and electrocute it. With a bunch of appliances they've plugged in everywhere. <laughs> and of course, the first thing, they have Jay sit in the pool for which, God which, knows how long. Which reflects what we've seen in the beginning of the movie, and also the picture of her at the pool with her dad. Yeah, and it, you know, in spite of like the silliness of this plan, which is deliberate, I think, well, the director even admitted that, it's a really beautiful setup. Like, just Jay sitting in the big pool. It, it reminded me of, like, um, Cat People, the original Oh yeah, Val uh, the Val Luton. Yeah. yeah, really, just beautiful atmosphere and um, great sense of mounting dread. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what this movie just does so beautifully. It bears pointing out too that the movie has a. Uh, it kind of foreshadows this sequence in a lot of ways. You know, first of all, the the photograph of Dad in the pool on the mirror at the beginning of the movie that's not commented on, but also the sci-fi movie they're watching at the beginning of the film has the sentence, the the line of dialogue: "You're afraid of an overload. You can't tap enough electricity wherever <laughs> you get get it from to control a strong enough charge." And that's uh, that's exactly what plays out here too, because the we learn that the appliances really aren't enough to shock anything when you throw them in a pool that size. Mm-hmm. But uh, I found that kind of funny, and and, and they, they were all they were all appliances you would find at like an antique shop. Mm-hmm. None yeah, of them it's... were like contemporary, whatever you'd find at Best Buy right now, or old lamp, old yeah, toaster. old blenders, yeah, uh, old tele like old box televisions. Yeah, just just to keep hammering home that uh, timelessness. But but the it does not walk into the pool as expected, and it just starts throwing appliances <laughs> at her to beam her in the head and presumably drown her for easy capture uh it <laughs> i i have some issues with that but i do like some of the shots of her underwater as the televisions are coming down and stuff and sinking like i said yeah the 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 way that shot almost undoes you know the problems of that scene and it makes me go well why didn't the it get like a knife or something I, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I was wondering why didn't the it just get in the pool with her? Like, the way it was expected to, but... Maybe you know, it but was as, worried about the electricity. But as the, as the date earlier commented, it's slow, but it's not dumb. Okay. Well, so, that's all the explanation you need, folks. That's right. Yep, so move along. But, uh, yeah, they, 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 they shoot it with a gun again, as they, have a, as they have before, and it immediately regenerated. But this time, it fills the pool with blood. It hit I, it, like, right between the eyes, too. Yeah, so maybe it took a little longer to regenerate. 
but you know but the point is it's not dead it's that it, there's no escaping it you can't you're never going to get away from it and i think that's just its role as a metaphor for growing up and recognizing that your own mortality is inevitable mm-hmm. uh so I want to talk about something I really like about this movie. Oh, well, a couple things. Uh, the first being that I, I had said that, you know, where Scream TV was made with a contempt for its audience, this movie certainly isn't. Um, and so that, that, that manifests itself in quite a few ways. Uh, there is a sequence where they, where they investigate and find um, the date who passed the curse onto her again. There's a, and during that sequence, Jay is lining up blades of grass along her arm. And I took that to be symbolic of cutting scars. Hmm. Uh, this is especially true later because there's also a scene in which we see a pill on a napkin next to a tray of food for Jay. And later, the only thing that's gone is the pill and the food hasn't been eaten. Uh, I, so I think, there's, I think there's a lot of sort of sly references to issues that real teenagers go through. But also there is the greater implication that we, we see, we see Jay have a few sex scenes. She almost always has sex with her underwear on. Um, she doesn't. And I she was never... wondering if that was just something the actress wanted to do. Maybe she wasn't comfortable being nude. I, I think it fits the character though, because we, we, no matter who it's with that we see it, there's no enjoyment for the act on her face. It's always very impersonal. Yeah. It's it's sort of detached and and she you know and before she gets chloroformed she's giving that monologue about how you know she always imagined herself with a boy and a car you know and it was never about anything it was just about being having some freedom and I think that's what it is I think that the sex that Jay's sexuality and indeed perhaps the sexuality of a lot of teenagers that you know of of her age isn't so much about the sex act itself as much as it is about having freedom and liberation to do something that your parents can't know about and aren't involved in and, Mm. and to feel more adult in that way. Yeah. And, uh, funny you mentioned it. And we should say too, that the last form we see it take is, uh, her father, Mm -hmm. the absent dad, but her mom's equally absent in the way that moms, uh, tend to be in these movies. I want to say there's a shot of her mom asleep on a bed and it's almost out of focus. Yeah. And the, that goes along with the whole film. There's almost no adult authority presence in the movie. We overhear her mom talking after it's assumed, you know, after the after she reported to the police that she was chloroformed and told these bizarre things. Yeah. But yeah, mom is not a present figure, which is kind of troubling later when one of the kids gets shot in the leg and taken to the hospital, and there's no adult figure to comment on it. Well, I'm actually really glad there isn't like a John Saxon character from Night Nightmare on Elm Street cop like. You crazy teenagers. Yeah, we don't need that. Yeah. Not nothing, nothing wrong with John Saxon in that movie, but I don't want to see... But he's the weakest part yeah, of that movie. Uh, it, there's, there's so many horror movies in that wake that did that. and we don't, we don't It was an unnecessary ex- character, yeah. Yeah, this movie doesn't see any need for expositional characters, mm-hmm. and I, I, it's, it's better for it. Um, but also, uh, what I really love about this movie is every group I have shown this movie to or seen this movie with, there is everybody who's watched it will always comment what their strategy to avoid this monster would be. Yeah. Some pretty and, creative ones. Oh, yeah, very creative ones. But the, the, the damning thing about it is that I don't think there really is a way. <laughs> and I, I think that's the point of its relentlessness, that 
you know, because some, you know, a few people have told me like, oh, well, I would, I would fly to the other side of the country, and I'd work there for a month, and I then I'd keep, then I'd fly it again. It's like eventually you're going to run out of money that way, unless you're already rich. Hmm. You're going to run out of resources, and you're going to run out of people who believe you. Or a car is going to break down somewhere, or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the only way to really get around it is to pass it on, which has led to some interesting comments from friends of ours about uh, female friends of ours about how they would become sexual vigilantes, <laughs> who would just pass it on to awful people. Uh, there's a scene in this movie where Jay uh, sees she's she's by the ocean and she sees three people who the we've boat been, bros yeah we've been coining them as the boat bros uh we don't see them up close we just see them from a distance from her point of view but we see the, we see her you know strip down to her um swimsuit and swim over to the boat we don't see her get in the boat we don't see anything we just we just cut to the aftermath of her looking very sort of blank faced and driving while still dripping wet and so we presume that she's had sex with all of them uh to 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 pass on this curse uh, so that's a very traumatic thing for her, but <laughs> the creature comes back very fast after that. So I, I was wondering, how were the boat bros killed? And I just have to assume that they saw another teenage girl walk out toward their boat and thought, two in one day? Everything's coming up, boat bros. <laughs> that's almost a scene I want to see. <laughs> right? These these assholes are probably going to get their own. Yeah, the, even from far away, you could tell they were kind of guys you would just You'd see him like on your news feed, on on your Facebook or whatever. Had another sweet party, brah. <laughs> they only communicate in meme. I don't know what it is. Chicks just keep swimming up to our boat. <laughs> but, <laughs> Actually, you know what? I'm happy the movie didn't show up because now I'm thinking about like an awful social media scene in that film. There's no yeah, mention I... of anything like that. No, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, and yeah, and when the kids are together, like even even before things go crazy, they're usually they're just watching black and white television, talking about books, or they're playing a board game, or making fart jokes, or something. They they feel very real. There's a there's a sort of social awkwardness between them. And there's an innocence too. Yeah, it feels very genuine. Yeah, I like that a lot. Like I said, this is a movie that does not have contempt for its teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh. And, you know, like we said, like, the it will catch you. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the whole point of that uh, that whole little caper they plan at the end, is that mm-hmm. it is inevitable. You mm-hmm. know, it is silly. What are you going to do? The, yeah, you can you can make some dumb plans, but this thing is just going to come after you no matter what you do. I know, maybe, gonna... it, yeah, maybe it'll get creative and just take a train if you try to fly across the country. Right. Uh, actually, the director has commented when he was asked at a uh, Q&A once, that sure it could get on a plane conceivably yeah nobody could it, see it yeah it'll just it'll just, it'll stand patiently and wait and get to you someone would see I, like I, a tsa employee fly out of the way that gets in his way i personally like the image of it walking on the bottom of the ocean or something if you crossed over yeah like uh, carnival of souls yeah something like that i think that's very very scary but the idea is that it's always going to get you and that's and that's it, again it's 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 the eternal footman from j offered proof rock it's it's death Death is going to follow you. You can make whatever silly plan you want to make to extend your life, but there's no such thing as immortality. Mm-hmm. And, and, that... and, and sex is the greatest... Uh, death is the greatest sexually transmitted disease of them all. Well, I I think that cements this film as just mm-hmm. being a terrific, outstanding horror picture. 
Yeah, there's more that could be said about it, but I don't feel like it's necessary. Uh, again, like you know, we said the the very end of the movie is just you know she has passed it on to Paul because he's the last guy left, uh, and he you know he thinks about passing it on to prostitutes. That doesn't seem to work out either, and they're just walking hand in hand with a very blurry, slow moving figure sort of approaching in the background. We don't really know what it is. Yeah, and and you just know. That's it. When I saw that in the theater, I heard a few people in the theater go, oh, what? Like, they expected to have a clear-cut ending where it was defeated, or... <laughs> or they'd have a, a gruesome death or something, I'm sure. Yeah, But that, that's missing the point entirely. Uh, I think this is a modern horror classic. I do. I do I, uh, it, it got to me later. I, I will say that after the, the, the right after I saw this movie the first time, I had to go... I used to... The, the house I had at the time, I would have to go into the the really dark, spooky, cavernous basement to do my laundry. So I was there down at night, and I thought, oh my gosh, I've put myself in a place where there's only one exit. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think this is the kind of movie that would... If you have a crowdophobia or just a phobia of people, uh, this definitely does it. Um, it, it. It's a movie to be enjoyed on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. You can take in the beautiful cinematography. There's the great soundtrack. There's the kids. I think all of the kids are really likable. And they turn in believable acting. Yeah, it's uh, some people would say mumblecore. I don't think it's quite like that. No. But, it, but it's very natural. I, I do think it cements lead actress Micah Monroe as somebody to watch, though. Oh, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to more of her stuff. And uh, so let's jump into more of her stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about this one as long, but right before we recorded this, we both realized that you and I had seen The Guest. Yes. Now, uh, I, I had enjoyed The Guest, mm-hmm. um, probably a little more than, you know, you had initially. And, uh, yeah, I've been around on it a little bit more since. Okay. Uh, I, but this is a new movie by Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, who are the creative team behind uh, the 2009 slasher movie, which I really like, called uh, You're Next. Mm-hmm. And I think that my initial reaction to The Guest has to do with like as as compared to your next because they're they are similar films in a way but i think i think i have a much greater fondness for uh movies about mask mask uh, mask slashers than i do about movies that are ostensibly uh good <laughs> gory parodies of things like the born identity yeah i don't have this much love for the born identity genre <laughs> um I, what i liked about these two films adam wingard's done is he's taken horror tropes and he's made two films that aren't they're kind of horror movies and they kind of aren't um you could call you could conceivably call your next an action movie like a home invasion movie because so it's not like a supernatural thing it's not like an unkillable monster it's it's almost like die hard in a way like a budgeted die hard where our lead actress is just really excellent at protecting herself with you know tons of booby traps and everything Mm-hmm. And here, and it follows. I mean, uh, not uh, the guest. Yeah, really. Um, we have a guy that's kind of like a Michael Myers figure. Uh, it takes place at Halloween, and you know, magical John Carpenter land. Uh, there's a setup for like a big Halloween dance that you know that group like. Okay, that's definitely got to be in the movie if they set it up so early. Yeah. Uh, there's just that great motif going on, but at the same time, it's. This one probably is more straddling both horror and action. Well, he, he is a... So then you're next. The, the, the lead antagonist in this movie is a soldier 
pretending to be uh, someone who knew this family's de- recently killed an action son. Mm-hmm. And that he was involved with a lot of the secret special forces work they're sworn to never talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and he has a convincing story and there's even a photograph of him. And our voice of reason in regards to not trusting this guy is Micah Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the teenage daughter slash sister of the recently deceased soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. She's uh, well, she doesn't lead. She does play a slightly different, I mean, a different enough character. Yeah, she's not as mousy as she yeah. is. She's a bit more assertive. A bit more assertive. A bit. You get the sense that she's meant. She's meant to be a bit more of a cool character in this one. She mm-hmm. kind of has that like sort of. I don't know. I don't know what to call that haircut, uh, and and she makes she makes big CDs like cool kids do. Yeah, she's got the cool kid bedroom. She's got a bad boy boyfriend. She goes to cool Halloween parties. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and she's got and she has that rock and roll uh, diner waitress outfit. Yeah. It's like I don't think I've seen a diner waitress in like the knee high socks or whatever in combat boots, but I mean that's cool. Uh, I I enjoy the um, the interplay between the soldier who's referred to as David Collins and Micah Monroe's younger brother. Those Luke. are some of my favorite scenes because they'll be having a very normal conversation, and then it'll go into the topic of the bullies at school, and then Dan Stevens, who plays uh, what's David David in quotation marks. He'll just say something completely psychopathic and crazy to the kid with a straight face. And it's, but, and the kid has the best reaction shots every single time. I what's great it. about it is that Luke is down for that craziness. Yeah. He's like, he's like, hey. he's just like oh, well, we're friends. I know that you're probably going to kill some people, but we're buds, right? Like You're, you're the closest I've had to a, to, a, to a cool male figure in my life and forever. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie uh, has been cited for its soundtrack. Uh, a lot of people. We actually, think that... we, we actually got a question about that. We do, do we? We have some mailbag questions. Mailbag. I'm down for some mailbag. So this, uh, so yeah, we we I solicited mailbag. We finally got some, and I'm hoping that this is something we can do more often. So, if you guys, if any of the listeners in the show, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Manovsky article, and I'll probably open a new bloodbath and be on Twitter account at some point as well. So you can send us any questions because we'll announce the next movie we're talking about, and we'd love to hear from you. Um. But this first one has specifically to do with the soundtrack. Uh, and this comes from uh, James Pickens, who is uh, tw- on Twitter, at DuckNuts. Uh, these two films, being the uh, It Follows and The Guests, have real nice soundtracks that feel like they complement one another. But which do you prefer in the end? Mm, me? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I prefer uh, It Follows. Right, that is see. just a rip-roaring soundtrack. I really like the one to the guest, but it's it's just really cool, and it just kind of adds a little bit to the scene, but it's not as nearly as strong and, I think, important to its movie as uh, It Follows. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify that I, I agree that It Follows is the stronger of the two soundtracks, because I think it... I think that soundtrack creates immense dread and just feels so perfectly horror to me, but... Uh, the guest is very much what I would have been listening to in college, because it is so <laughs> full of like new wave. <laughs> so oh, dude, I, yeah, just get me some synth pop and I'm there. Yeah, so I, I think the guest is a really great soundtrack. So in college, my answer would be the guest. Currently, my answer is it follows. Yeah. 
That's a very acceptable answer. We have a couple others, and I'm going to save them for a little while later. Okay. So back to the guest. Yeah, back to the guest. Um, where were we on that one? We were talking about the soundtrack. Oh, a lot of people have compared this to uh, Drive, Nick Reffin's film from a few years ago, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, they're, they're so similar, man. It's other than a synth-pop soundtrack and a blonde guy that kills people. Brutally, though. Brutally, yeah. Um, yeah let's, let's I'm, right... just, I'm just very curious as to why people seem to always make that connection. Or does like a synth-pop soundtrack just seem so out of the blue now? I think it, I think part of it might be that Drive has become like the the latest milestone of cool. Like you know, if you look back and try to think of a really cool movie, Drive is probably one of the first ones that's going to come to mind right now. I I you know I wouldn't dispute that claim either. I love Drive. Uh, but the guest. Okay, so the the meat and potatoes of the guest, and we're not going to go scene by scene. But the meat and potatoes of the guest is that. David is programmed by the government, and we're told this by uh, Lance Reddick from from The Wire and Fringe and many other shows and movies where he is an authority figure. He just has that voice look about him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's real cool. But uh, yeah, but yeah, that that David has been programmed by the government to as an experiment to murder anyone that that even seems to consider that he's not who he says he is. Anybody who blows his cover has to die and all loose ends have to be tied up. Whether that means, you know, burning everyone in a building alive and removing all their teeth to, you know, take take too long to track him down or to stab somebody that says something <laughs> and just leave them somewhere and then frame somebody else for the murder. I he's know. a survivor. I, and I kind of dig that MO. Yeah, I do too. I, uh, I like that this movie builds up to like his big encounter. Um, there's like an early fight scene. We know that he's a really competent ass kicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start hearing about, oh, there was such and such. He died. They found a bunch of pills. And it's something that directly helps the dad character. And the, he, yeah, the family members, he seems to like try to ingratiate them, himself to them without saying it's him. Yeah. Um, and then it leads up to a scene with um, something right out of both Taxi Driver and The Terminator. Where he goes to purchase some guns, and it's also a really, you know, uh, outstanding scene. Is if you remember the the Terminator, where uh, Arnold shows up at the gun shop, asks for the guns, loads them, and then kills the gun owner. Yeah, it's uh, something very similar to that here. And this in, movie is actually very Terminator. I think that's even more so than Drive. I did. Yeah, it has more in common with Terminator than I think any of the other movies people link it to, even Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's just got that. Carpenter flavor, man. I just love it. Um, it's, be- it's because of David's relentlessness. Yeah, um, there's e- it even has the all an almost uh, a recreation of the I'll Be Back scene, mm. where Micah Monroe gets picked up from a diner, and the G-Man picks her up, and then immediately after they leave, David pulls up in a car and kills everybody there. It's a great scene. He just murders everyone in the diner because it's like, you know what? I don't have time for this. I, I will say the the uh, kills that we get in this movie are brutal. They're very mean spirited. Even mm-hmm. some characters that don't deserve any violence towards them at all, I think. And it makes it kind of memorable and I like that Adam Wingard does that. He gives well, he, he gives consequence to an otherwise silly movie. Yeah, it, essentially David is turning this place into a suburban war zone with no emotion to it. And and I I kind of dig that he 
he tends to be very apologetic to some of the people if he liked them, but you're still going to die and he's going to do it without remorse. Mm-hmm. He'll say, I'm sorry, but he's still going to stab you in the heart or blow <laughs> up your diner with grenade. Yeah. Um, this movie, it's intentionally silly. Mm-hmm. It knows it is. It's not laugh. It, you're not supposed to laugh at it. You laugh with it. I like that about it a lot. His character is definitely a parody of, I'd say, the decade of Jason Bourne and Jason Bourne clones we've seen there's, over the years. There's a little bit of John Rambo in there with him wandering with that rucksack on his back. Oh, I didn't think about that, but that's probably that's probably true. Oh, you know what? The font of the movie, of the title of the guest, uh, that that's like the John Carpenter font for like The Fog or uh, Prince of Darkness. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Look, look up like an image of both, you know, and compare. But I'm, I think that's you know deliberate yet again. Oh, sure. Well, I, I, you know, Simon Barrett, the screenwriter, wrote this, and he wrote your next. So I think I think their mo is very much in sort of exploring the things that these uh, genre films have in the past have done and trying to make them new. Uh, uh, with with your next, they do that with a, you know, with a final girl who is more who is more uh powerful than any of the killers in her path and in this movie they do it with a non-heroic secret spy Mm -hmm. and i I think it was good casting to get dan stevens who was known for doing down abbey he famously left that show uh by having his character killed off in one episode he was in downton abbey he was the star of downton abbey I was when I was watching it. I was wondering, like, I was like, is he, this, is this his voice? Does he does he always sound like he's kind of doing a Matthew McConaughey impression? Oh, I think that was a joke, or the joke is that he has almost a, a, his accent is too over the top. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's what I refer to as uh, Hunnaming, which is based on Charlie Hunnam, who <laughs> is another British actor in a lot of things. But I always think about his really weird American accent in Pacific yeah. Rim, where he's like the kaiju. Yeah, the kaiju came from the bottom of the ocean. It's like nobody, no American <laughs> has that accent, Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> yeah, and, and and here Dan Stevens is going, "Yes, ma'am, I was friends with your son." It, it's it's just over the top, and it's, it's here like, it's played for laughs. Sure, I guess yeah. If you're looking at it that way, this is somebody trying to sound like an all-American, and maybe that's part of the cover. <laughs> yeah, um, there's there's that wonderful eye of the duck scene, and when I mean by eye of the duck, I mean the way David Lynch would say it. It's a scene in a film. He says, you know, if you look at a duck, which is one of the most beautiful animals, uh, the eye is the little jewel. It's the thing that tells you everything you need to know. And it's the scene where Micah Monroe is really skeptical about this guy. And she lies down on her bed and starts playing the Love and Rockets song. And the camera cuts to outside of her bedroom and then it dollies over. And we just see Dan Stevens staring out menacingly like Jack Nicholson. Yeah, Shine. I love that scene. It's it, a it's a really sinister scene about creating a mixtape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I love it. Uh, so I I don't know what to, what else. Oh, I did want to say that this movie is very good at um, with the setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. It ha- for so much of the film, it's these big wide open spaces. They make good use of the location. They make it very clear they're in sort of a rural area. Not a whole lot's going on, you know. When he kills those guys out in the gun, sh- uh, the gun scene. But at the end of the film, ends in like a little haunted house maze. 
Yeah, the, just to uh, give it some claustrophobia and some uh, variety. I like that set. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what high school has the budget to do something to that effect for a dance. <laughs> Magic but... Carpenter High does. Yeah. Well, no, it's Moriarty High School. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Moriarty High School. <laughs> What's the name of it? I forgot about that. <laughs> well, yeah, like in Carrie, it was Bates High or something. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think if you go into this movie, don't expect it to be a horror film. No, um, I, I think it just straddles those two lines really well. I, I think, though, if you if you come in knowing it's a knowing satire, you'll be less frustrated by some of the lapses in logic that the parents have in allowing this guy to come along. and Like, this guy looks like he's in his, like, late 20s, but you're sending him to parties with your teenage daughter, and you're taking him to, you're taking him to PTA meetings and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he just starts hanging out. I, the mother character is one of the most feckless movie characters I've seen in years. Yeah, she, she is out of it, and she pays for that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's a. <laughs> I think if you if you come in with that frame of mind, you'll be better off. And I think that's that's maybe why I initially wasn't totally into it. I'm like, oh, this isn't what I was expecting. Yeah. But then I sort of, in retrospect, sort of figure out what it's trying to do, and I'm with it. And yeah, and I, I we said this before. You know, we were talking about it follows. That's kind of like a really great Fear Street movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've I've referred to it follows as the most poisonous Fear Street book that R.L. Stein never wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say like the last act of the guest is like the most violent episode of Goosebumps of all time. So I, I'm gonna ask you why, and I'm just gonna say real quick. As, as far as Fear Street goes, it's because as a kid, I read both series, Goosebumps and Fear Street, and I remember Fear Street being the one where the suggestion of like sexuality and violence was a little more prominent. It was never explicit, but the subtext was there. So with where do, where do you draw the Goosebumps comparison? With I, I'd say it's the Halloween motif, and it's the brother and sister heroes. Hmm. Um, that just it just immediately calls back to my you know my years as a kid reading all those goosebumps. I'd read like one a day for several summers, and I just can't separate those kinds of motifs from goosebumps and just the silly silliness of it. Yeah, no, I, I I get what you're saying because you know goosebumps typically like you said it had siblings or it had like a guy like a young a young boy with his, like his his platonic friend with the gender ambiguous name like yeah. Andy or something mm-hmm. so yeah no I, I can see that I mean that's, th- just... that's how it works for me maybe not everybody else that can draw those associations I'm gonna bring up our next question right now okay um, this one is from Twitter user at uh, Kobats and Kobats asks, or says rather, both the guest and the cinematic masterpiece Face Off have a scene in which the antagonist, pretending to be someone else, teaches a teen how to use a knife in self-defense, which they later end up using against them. Co- coincidence or loving homage to Face Off? As much as I would love this to be, it could be. I bet if I asked Adam Wingard, he'd say it. I think it's coincidental. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I agree that Face Off is a cinematic masterpiece of all time. So, I think so, you're going to reference the other movies that Simon Barrett would have definitely seen Face Off. So I'm... <laughs> either way, good catch, Kobats, because I didn't yeah, even think about that. Definitely, dude. Please, people, if you're seeing other movie associations we aren't, please bring them up. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen Face Off in like 10 years, so... But I'll that definitely happens. <laughs> yeah. We know our good. 
Yes, I just remember that. <laughs> and uh, so we have one more question. Uh, this one comes from uh, at Bunny Cartoon, uh, also known as Don H. Don hosts a really great podcast called the Anime Nostalgia Podcast, which I've Ooh. guested on a couple times, and it's Ooh. well worth your time. Uh, she's very knowledgeable, but she she said that she hadn't seen the guest, so she didn't have a question for that one. But she did have a question for It Follows, and one we've kind of addressed, but I think we can double back on. Uh, and it, that is, what was your favorite old school horror element they included in the film, and why? Old school horror element. Um, I'll let you go take the lead on that one, Casey. Sure. Um, I, we've touched on this quite a bit, but I I want to just really emphasize how important that setting is to me um that sort of vaguely fall as you've called i don't know the magical john carpenter land but it's it's this vaguely fall suburbia that is just very much the neighborhood that i live in you know it's i don't live in detroit but i see that i see those streets every day outside my window and I think that's more powerful to me than what we get in a lot of modern horror act movies where we don't really ever get a suggestion of the place that these things take place in anymore. Uh, you tend to get a lot of interior shots and set shots and maybe you get the facade of a house. But this made it clear that there's a whole world outside of that house. There's a neighborhood. There's there's woods outside that neighborhood. There's a swing set over here. I, I really enjoyed that sense of geographic place and I wish that more horror movies would incorporate that. Oh yeah, use your settings. Not a, yeah, clearly, I don't, I don't think enough horror films do that anymore. I want to say that probably dropped off around the 80s. Yeah. So how about you? Um, I just want to say the way the movie uses the camera as a character almost. Um, especially in that opening sequence. It's, this un, it's like an unwitting uh, spectator. The way we watch this poor girl run around us and then away. And the way it, it'll, it'll kind of so beautifully in that opening just keeps things off the edge of the camera, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just it's playing with your eyes, playing with your emotions. And those and, wide shots of backgrounds, which are so yeah, clever. So, you know, so many horror movies, uh, I think a lot of directors got caught up with what can we throw, with, throw at you with the screen here because of the limited budget, um, it, ma- it made them more creative with how they use the camera. And that's just so cinematic. And that, to me, is super old school. And even in editing, there aren't like an excessive number of cuts. There Ooh. aren't... It, it, lets, it lets things linger as they should. It doesn't, it doesn't just constantly cut to screaming faces, you know, like wide, you know, great close-up or anything. It's edited very invisibly, which is classical editing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a... This is, I think David Robert Mitchell has a very sure hand and I'm looking yeah. forward. I, I really, I'm looking forward to more from both him and Adam Wingard. Oh yeah, I I, I think they could be among our great uh, modern genre directors for years if, to come. If they choose to be. <laughs> if they choose to be, uh, Adam Wingard, I'd love to see him deconstruct a few more fun genres. Mm-hmm. He's he's just a fun director. Yeah, he and uh, Simon Barrett make a good pair. Yeah, um, is uh, I guess your next and the guest. I think those are both on uh, Netflix right now. Uh, check them out. Uh, I'm sure It Follows will be on there eventually. It Follows yeah. is a movie I'd recommend buying. Yeah, if you're I, into I, horror. <laughs> I haven't bought very many Blu-rays lately, and that is one I got day one. So oh, yeah. uh, I very, I very highly recommend It Follows to for your library. Mm-hmm. And you could probably find it in a red box or something right now if you're listening to this and you want to just see it. Yeah. Well, I think that about covers all we were all we set out to do today. 
Yeah, I'm just really glad we did this thing again. Me too, man. Well, we don't have we don't know what the next episode is going to be yet. So watch watch the internet. We'll definitely announce it ahead of time if anybody wants to watch and keep up with us. Uh, yeah. You can still find us on Facebook. We, the, the Bloodbath and Beyond page still exists. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Manovsky article if you want to just have a chat. Please. And you just find me through Casey. <laughs> yeah, he's I'm a weirdo a, who doesn't do Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Bert's not a social media guy. So, But uh, I, I, had a, I had a great time. I'm really glad we're doing this again. And I hope uh, for many more. So we'll, get, we'll see you guys next week. All right. With that said, stay bloody, my friends.